Well, hey, everybody. Good to see you. Glad that you're here. Glad that many of you are watching uh, online and through other places, and maybe you're watching this back uh, later in the week. We're glad that you're a part of what God is doing at Evangel. Hey, I want to give you something that you should do. How about that? <laughs> one, of the, one of the things that has been a blessing to many people is when you take a coaster, now they're not called coasters. They are, they're handouts. They're not, I, I was instructed that they're specifically not coasters. I used one as a coaster on my desk this week, but it's fine. But these are our Easter invites, and uh, and want to give you just a practical way that you can invite people this week to Easter. And here's why I want you to invite people, because we're still hearing stories today of people whose lives were impacted because they came last Easter. And there's some people who will never darken the door of this church, but they will walk into the event center and experience a community uh, Easter celebration. And so there's people you can invite that maybe you couldn't invite at other times of the year. Here's one great way to invite people. Hey, do you have plans for Easter? Uh, yeah. Well, before you have those plans, do you want to come to a celebration with me? Or they say, no. And you say, great, I have 5,000 friends that would love to hang out with you on Easter weekend. And uh, seriously, I think we, we take for granted that many of us have Easter plans. We have family around. But there are people, even here in this room, that don't have plans for Easter. Uh, and so maybe invite somebody into your home or invite somebody to the Easter celebration uh, that we're doing as a community or for our community. And uh, it's a great way to invite people. One other thing you can do is when next time you go to a restaurant or a coffee shop, leave one of these. But don't leave it by itself. Leave it with the most generous tip that you've ever left in your life. I'm not even kidding. Be a blessing to somebody. Don't say, hey, just come to my thing or what my church is doing, say, hey, let me bless you, and then let me invite you to, to something where God might impact their life. I know somebody just this week who went through a drive through and, uh, and met somebody who was just handing them their food, and she said, hey, do you have plans for Easter? And the lady said, uh, no, and she invited her. And, uh, and the lady said, hey, I'll see you on the 21st, and is excited to come. And so uh, it's easier than you think. Most people will come to church if they're invited. They just don't come because nobody invites them. So invite somebody this week and be a part of that. I haven't introduced myself. My name is Josh. I know some of you don't know me, and I serve as the lead pastor here at Evangel. And uh, it's fun to have a full house. Today, it's like you've all crawled out of hibernation, out of the den. You're like, oh, 60 degrees? I can come out of my house again. And so we're thankful for that. And uh, we're, we're closing a series today called Deep and Wide, and we've been working our way through this series uh, of how do we become deeper in our faith, but also continue to reach people for Jesus. And we've identified eight characteristics of a disciple or a follower of Jesus. A disciple is different than a follower. You follow people on Twitter that you're never going to become like. If you're going to be a disciple of someone, you are wanting to become like that person. And so we are called to be disciples of Jesus, to become like him. And so we've defined eight characteristics of someone who is becoming more like Jesus. And these are areas of our lives that can be developed. One is we build missional relationships. We get ourselves involved in communities of people that, that push us toward Jesus, not pull us away from our relationship with him. Number two, you live a life of humility and vulnerability. Jesus was God in the flesh. He stepped out of heaven to come and to experience life and earth and die for you and for me. It's the ultimate act of humility. And him hanging naked on a cross for our sin is the ultimate act of vulnerability. 
We, uh, we also know that a disciple will be biblically literate. That if you are growing in relationship with someone, you want to know what that person thinks. You want to know their opinions. You want to have deep conversations with them. And if we're really growing in our relationship with Jesus, then we're going to want to know his word. There's going to be a hunger to know what he says and who he is, and that comes through scripture. We also know a disciple will demonstrate faith, that you'll take steps of faith even when they're uncomfortable. A disciple will serve others, not just themselves anymore, but serving God and serving others. A disciple will personally seek God. Jesus withdrew to be alone with God. That was the source of his strength, and uh, will do the same. Uh, A disciple will share their faith. They'll invite people to Easter. They'll tell people about what God has done in your life. And lastly, what we're going after today is a disciple will pursue total obedience. A disciple will pursue total obedience. Now, if you're curious about any of those messages, there's about nine messages online leading up to this one on goevangel.org where you can hear about every one of these characteristics of a disciple. But today I want to talk to obedience in a message entitled, The Pursuit of Happiness. The Pursuit of Happiness. I remember uh, from a young age, always thinking about the next thing in life, that if I could just obtain it, it would make me happy. And I didn't ask my sister for permission to tell this story, but I have the microphone and she loves me, so I'm going to do it anyways. But my personal job in life was to torture my older sister growing up. I was the second boy of three boys and an older sister, and she was the natural babysitter. And I remember one time taking the vents off the heater that led from our kitchen to our bathroom and reaching through and throwing stuffed animals at her while she was going to the bathroom just to torture her. I remember, I'm not an instigator at all anymore, by the way. I remember uh, my late elementary years, early junior high, when I got so angry at my sister because she had the power in the house when mom and dad were gone. And I thought, I cannot live with this woman for another four years of my life. If you're just tuning on, I'm talking about my older sister, not my marriage. I can't live with my sister for four more years of my life and being so frustrated with her. And I began to think my happiness would be if I can just get out of this situation, if I can just get out of this house, if I can just get off the farm, if I can just move away from Glenallen, North Dakota, that will make me happy. Come on, some of you have been there. You know what I'm talking about. You've never gone back. <laughs> I remember thinking if I could just get my first car, I would be happy. And my cousin gave me a teal geo storm when I was 14 years old. And it was a geo storm. (laughs) That was teal. And I was happy for a while. I I, I remember thinking, you know, if I could just uh, go to college, if I could just get my own place. And man, I look at some of the dumpy places I lived in college where I thought I really had arrived and I was finally happy to be out on my own. I'm like, man, who would ever live in that place that I was so excited about at that time? Maybe the the pursuit later became uh, a relationship. If I could just meet the right person and if I could get married, then I would be happy. And come on, everybody who's ever been married in their life says it's a lot harder than it looks before you get there. Amen. Yeah, you can say amen if your spouse said amen. Then you can say it. (laughs) After, after that, it's, man, maybe if I can just have kids. 
Some of you know what I'm talking about. As a guy who spent the hours of 2.30 a.m. to 5.30 a.m. this morning getting kicked in the face by a child that would not sleep, it's not all it's cracked up to be. I'm just telling you. I love my kids, but it's challenging being a parent. It's challenging uh, stepping into that phase of life. And sometimes we, we look at the next season. Maybe it's a career. If I could just start a career. If I could just make money. If I could just make more money. And then pretty soon, if I didn't have to work anymore, I would be happy. Come on, where does it end? And we, we have to, at some point, look at ourselves and say, I must be pursuing the wrong thing. Because my happiness always seems elusive. It seems like one step in front of me and I just can't catch it. Solomon refers in Ecclesiastes 2 to this pursuit of happiness as chasing the wind. As chasing the wind. Watch what he says. You know, you and I, we, before I get there, we are raised in a country or, or at least now populate a country that says that we are entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the government can maybe guard our happiness, but many of us have found out the government, the government cannot provide our happiness. And uh, the reality is that your possessions can't grant your happiness. That at times the people around you can't grant your happiness. That the pleasures of life can't grant you happiness. That really happiness comes from a different place and is something different than maybe even what we've been looking for. In fact, let me go further and say you might not even be able to supply happiness for yourself. No matter how hard you work or how much you pursue it, let, let me show you what King Solomon in the Old Testament of Scripture, in the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the wisest people who ever lived, especially of his time, he, he spoke about the pursuit of happiness and he said this, he said, I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found that this too was meaningless. So I said, laughter is silly. What good does it do to, get, to seek pleasure? After much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine. I couldn't pursue things outside of me that would bring pleasure, so I began to consume things, hoping that they would bring pleasure. And while still seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness. Foolishness in Scripture often speaks to foolish living. In this way, I tried to experience the only happiness most people find during their brief time in this world. Did you catch that? I tried to experience the happiness, the only happiness most people find during this, their brief life in this world. I want to tell you the things that I'm about to list and that Solomon is going to talk about, some of them can be good in and of themselves, but they cannot provide for your happiness. At least not for a kind of happiness that is sustaining, that is seated in the core of your being, that carries you through even the most difficult of times. So he goes on, he says, I, I tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself and by planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, filling them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate my, my many flourishing groves. I bought slaves, both men and women and others who were born into my household. I owned large herds and flocks. I had many assets more than any of the kings who had lived in Jerusalem before me. There was great kings like King David who had come before him. 
any of them that lived before me, I collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasure of many kings and provinces. I hired wonderful singers, both men and women, and had many beautiful concubines. I had everything a man could desire. So I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me, and my wisdom never failed me. Think about it. He had wisdom for every single situation that he walked through. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was also meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. Listen, every one of us is building a life, and you're climbing the rungs of the ladder of your life. And what I want to help you, prevent you from doing today, is, is climbing a ladder that you get to the top and you look over and say, hey, I wish I would have climbed a different ladder, because there's no joy here. I, I got the fame, I got the influence, I got the affluence, people know my name, and I'm unhappy. I, I, I have the, the house, I got the boat, I have all these other things, but I don't have my marriage or a relationship with my kids. I wish I had climbed a different ladder. And maybe there's some of us today that have been on one ladder that we're saying, today I need to step off this ladder and over to climb something more meaningful, something more lasting. I don't want to chase the wind. I don't want to get to the top of the ladder and realize that it was all for naught. See, Solomon creates quite an incredible list here, doesn't he? He experienced great wine, foolish and wild living, huge homes, beautiful vineyards, gardens and parks, fruit trees, reservoirs, slaves, herds and flocks. He owned more than the kings before him, silver and gold, singers, concubines, everything a man could desire, greater than anyone else around him, wisdom that never failed, anything he wanted, every pleasure, even pleasure in hard work. And his conclusion is it's all meaningless. See, some of us have worked hard to produce happiness for ourselves. You, you thought, if I can just obtain X, Y, Z, I will be happy, or I'm going to work my way to happiness, or I'm going to pull myself up, the, up by the bootstraps to get myself happiness. And you've taken on a mindset that says, my happiness depends on me. And in varying ways and intensities, everyone on earth has been a participant in this pursuit. And to some degree, your happiness does depend on the decisions that you make. But it's because we believe that our happiness depends on us that pleasure-seeking experiences thrive. So we are... We follow athletics very closely only to find that our happiness is not in the Minnesota Vikings. <laughs> we pick up hobbies. We go to concerts. We, we think traveling. You know, I used to think that if I could just travel more, I'd be happier. And now I have a family and I, I, I found that that does not bring happiness. <laughs> that I want to be home with my family. And it's funny how life changes. How, how the things that we think will make us happy in one season will not in the next season. Maybe it's dancing or fashion or do-it-yourself projects or wealth or status or alcohol or drugs or food that you rely on to keep you happy. And while all of those might have the temporary ability to bring you some 
source of satisfaction, none of them can sustain joy in your spirit, joy in your soul. None of them can truly cause you to live a life of happiness. There's been kind of a shift in the mindset of our society away from my own hap- um, that happiness is my responsibility to now we say I'm happy or I'm not happy and it's basically based on outside forces. Like if I hadn't married this person, I would be happy. If I didn't have to work for that person, uh, I'd be more happy. If this was different, then I'd be happy. My happiness is no longer depending on me. Now it depends on all these other things happening to me. And that's a significant change that has happened in the generations, especially those coming up in the last 10 or 20 years. Our, our happiness, we no longer look to produce it for ourselves, but now we look to others to, to produce it for us. Let me just give you an example, and, and no matter where you fall on the political spectrum, look at these statements. Michelle Obama said of her husband that if we will elect him, he will help us fix our souls. Donald Trump, in being elected, said, I'm the only one that can fix it. Now, no matter what you think about those people or those statements, both point to this reality that we've begun to believe our happiness depends on someone outside of us. That that our happiness doesn't, it's, it's not my responsibility, it's these other factors and other people that now are required to make me happy. So we blame other people, we blame the system, but here's the truth today. We must look inward and upward in order to find true happiness. We must look inward and upward. The reality is your happiness does depend on somebody outside of you. But it's not the person you're married to. It's not a political figure. It's Jesus. It's the God who created you. Your your happiness is dependent upon your relationship and what you do with that relationship that you have with him. Look at Solomon's conclusion in Ecclesiastes 2.22. He says, so what do people get in this life for all their hard work and anxiety? Their days of labor are filled with pain and grief. Even at night, their minds cannot rest. It is all meaningless. So I decided there is nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. I'm going to enjoy food and drink and work, and that's going to bring me happiness. Then... I realized. Then I had a revelation that these pleasures are from the hand of God. For who can eat or enjoy anything apart from him? God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy to those who please him. Let me just take out wisdom and knowledge really quick. God gives joy to those who please him. So where does happiness come from? Where does joy in your inmost being, innermost being, where does that come from? It comes from pleasing God. See, over and over in Scripture, in Ecclesiastes 2, we have a couple English words that are used like joy and pleasure. And these are actually originated out of the Hebrew and Greek languages for the word simha and the Greek word makarios. And simha refers to the joy of God. That what Solomon was actually pursuing was a joy that came outside of his situation, that came outside not from himself or from other people, but a joy that came from God. Makarios refers to blessing. And you and I understand that, that scripture, here's the way to blessing. Blessing isn't when something good happens to you, you say, hashtag I'm blessed. <laughs> 
true blessing of Scripture is when you surrender something to Jesus and he says, I see your obedience, and then he gives you something better in return. That's blessing. I, I gave money today in the offering. I'm saying, God, I'm going to honor you with my wealth. And when God blesses you for your obedience, that's blessing. It's, it's when you lifted your hands in worship and said, I don't feel like it. I'm not sure that this song or this is true in my life, but I'm going to obey God anyways. And, and the reality of who he is is going to outweigh the reality of how I feel. You've just given God the sacrifice of praise, and he's going to bless that. He's, going to see, he's seeing you glorify him even in the midst of a difficult situation. This is the nature of blessing, that anything that you lay down for Jesus, he returns back to you. And maybe it doesn't come in the same form or fashion, but that's the nature and the cycle, the reciprocating principle of Scripture of what blessing is. So Solomon searched everywhere for Simha, or the joy of God, and Makarios, blessing, and he finally says, God gives Simha and Makarios to those who please him. Joy and happiness are possible for those who please God. Thank you, Josh, very much. How do I please God? (laughs) Knowing God's will and adding right action to it pleases God. When you know God's will for your life and you act on it, that is what brings pleasure to God. That's what pleases Him. In, in, In His sight, that's when He's pleased by what you and I are doing, knowing and following God's will. Another way you could say this is living with a sense of moral purpose. The moral part being, I'm going to live with right action, morality. The purpose part being, in accordance with God's will, his purpose, moral purpose. This is living with God, living in God's will and adding right action to his will in our lives. Human happiness and moral purpose or a sense of moral duty are intrinsically connected. It's why somebody can have a lot of money and a lot of fame and be really unhappy because they lack a sense of moral purpose. They lack the conviction of God has called me to do this, and when I do this, I'm walking in obedience to him. It's, it's that reality in our life. It's that conviction and that obedience that actually allows people who have very little to live with greater happiness than, that, than those that have much. It depends on whether or not you're living in obedience to God's will, whether or not you're living with a sense of moral purpose, which brings us to the eighth characteristic of discipleship, which is pursuing total obedience to God, knowing God's will and adding right action to it. It's a good thing because it keeps you in right relationship with God, and it's a good thing because it produces happiness and joy for your own soul. It produces happiness and joy for your own being. So the pursuit of happiness, for those of you that are unhappy, is less about, I'm going to get that person out of my life, I need to move on from this stage of life. I need to acquire more money. And it's more about, I'm going to approach this situation according to God's plan for my life. And that's where you'll find fulfillment. This is why comparison is so deadly, because we look around at what everybody else has and think, if I could just obtain what they have, I'll be happier. The reality is, if you would just obtain what God has for you, you would be happier. If you would identify what it is he's called you to do and you'd add right action to that, you would find obedience and as a result, 
happiness. See, that's different than my happiness depends on me or my happiness depends on them. Happiness as moral purpose says my happiness depends on God. It depends on his will and his plan and me adding right action to it. If I follow him and live rightly before him, I will experience joy. That's the truth. If I follow him and if I live rightly before him, I will experience joy. Let me just say it again. It's not a fake smile on your face every time you walk in the room. It's a joy that causes you to have peace and to be up even in situations that are difficult. Even in situations that might wipe somebody else out. So here's the challenge. God sets a pursuit in front of you and I. The world sets a pursuit, right? You should look this way. You should act this way. You should obtain these things. Pursue it, pursue it, pursue it. But God sets a different pursuit. Discover my will and act on it. And the result of of that is joy. Think of the Apostle Paul. He wrote in Scripture in the New Testament. He wrote the majority of the New Testament. And he said, I have finished my race. What I was pursuing, I achieved. And it wasn't in a wealth of possessions or fame. He had discovered what God's will was for his life and he had executed it. And he said, and so I'm going to be gone soon. I've run my race well. I've finished the race that God has set before me. And that is what brought joy. And you know what the greatest joy will be? That like, you, like, like Paul, you and I will pass away one day and we'll enter into the glory of heaven and God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy that I've prepared for you. This is the true, the true race of life. This is the true calling that you and I have as followers of Jesus. And the good news is, if you pursue it now, it will bring greater happiness and peace and joy into your life today. So it brings the next question, which is, what is God's will? And let me just tell you quickly, maybe you want to jot these down. The Bible is actually very specific about what the will of God is. It says, the will of God is that you, blank. It's it's very straightforward. There's some that need a little bit more interpretation, but 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 4 says, the will of God is for us to be saved is that you were born into this world with a sin nature that caused you to stray from God, and the the will of God is that you would be plucked out of that destiny which would bring destruction, even eternal destruction, and you'd be saved and set aside for eternity with God. But listen, it's not just that. It says the will of God is that you would be saved and that you would come to a knowledge of the truth. That you would develop a mind that is wrapped around the truth of God, not just knowing what you need to do or say to be saved from yourself or from your sin, but you would truly have the knowledge of the truth of God. Luke 9.23 says, the will of God, here's the next one, is that you would deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow Jesus. That there would come moments where your flesh would want to go one way and the Spirit of God would speak to you to go a different way and you would deny yourself or what you feel that you want. You would take up your cross and say, it's uncomfortable to deny that. It feels like anybody else in the world would not deny that, but I'm going to take up my cross and I'm going to follow Jesus. 
What does that mean? The night Jesus was betrayed before he was crucified, he raised, he, he, he raised up his voice to the Father and he said, Father, take this cup from me. Take this plan that you have for my life from me. But if not, then let your will be done. He denied himself. He literally took up his cross and he followed God's plan for his life. And for you and I, that'll mean sometimes we want to say things that we won't say. That'll mean sometimes we'll want to pursue things that we shouldn't pursue. That'll mean sometimes you'll become a person that nobody around you is becoming. That means sometimes that you will own your integrity more than you value your reputation or how other people see you. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says the will of God is that you would be sanctified. Sanctified is a fancy word for that you would become like Jesus. That you would live your life like his. That happens both the moment that you surrender your life to him and progressively as you follow him, you become more and more like him. So don't be discouraged if you've been following Jesus and you've still been carrying a little, a little bit of your old carcass around the way you were before Jesus because some of it goes away right away. But there's other baggage that over time God brings healing and helps us move past. Let me move through the rest. The will of God in 1 Thessalonians 5.18 is that you would give thanks in every circumstance. Where does that come from? Having joy. 1 Peter 2.15, the will of God is that by doing good, you will silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. It does not say by foolish talk yourself, you will silence the foolish talk of foolish people. No, by doing good, by living rightly, by letting the way you live exude, then you will silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Matthew 6.10, the will of God is that you will, is that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. What do we see on earth? Chaos, destruction, infighting, hatred, a whole bunch of different ideas. In heaven, the authority of God the peace of God, the government of God, the security of God, the healing of God, the renewal of the human being. We find all of these things. And, and he says, I don't want to just reserve that for heaven. Now, if you're following Jesus, let his will be done here as it's happening there. Why do I believe that somebody can be healed in this place today, right now, because there is a Holy Spirit who's working, who's God's arm working on the earth right now. And secondly, because God said on earth as it is in heaven. And I know in heaven there's a, Revelation says there's a tree and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. That God wants to bring healing now, not just in heaven. His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Ephesians 5.17, the will of God is that you would understand God's will. That makes a lot of sense. And here's the last one. The will of God is that once you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. You know what that is? His rewards. One is the reward of his presence. Another is the reward of eternity. If you're a follower of Jesus, there will be a day where you stand before a throne of judgment. where you give a response for the way that you lived your life and all the things that you did to glorify God, to execute his will on the earth, they'll all be accumulated in a crown. 
And because of all the good works and the things that you did that brought glory to God, you'll be given that crown as a reward. And then Jesus will appear in heaven. And the Bible says we'll take that crown and we'll cast it at his feet. And we'll say to him, be glory and honor and praise. Because if it wasn't for him, none of it would have happened. And friends, when that moment takes place in heaven, I want a big old crown. Because I want to say, it was all for you, Jesus. And I want to bring him the most glory and honor and praise in that moment. Because I lived my life well. I ran my race well. I served him well. Come on, you can say no to that peer pressure. You can say no to the pursuits of this life if that's the end. If that's what you and I are after. And it will bring satisfaction to your soul even now. Look what it says in John 15, 10. When you obey my commands, when you execute my will, you remain in my love just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. Verse 11, I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. Why is it that people who have all the possessions, who have all the influence, all the ambition, at times we see them lay it all aside and pursue God's will in a different way? It's because they know that the source of their joy isn't those things. It's doing what God has created them to do. I think of William Wilberforce. Many of you you would be familiar with him. Came up in the British Parliament in the 1780s. I mean, he was on the fast track to becoming prime minister. And in 1785, he surrendered his life to Jesus. And then he spent a lot of time away from all his old friends. Why? Because he knew he needed missional relationships to be able to continue to pursue Jesus. And then he came back and he laid down the pursuit of prime minister, which he was pretty much lined up to take. And instead, he set his sights on the abolition of slavery saying, I see something on earth that isn't in heaven. I see something happening through the will of man that is not the will of God. And over the next 20 years, he would fight. And in the early 1800s, it would lead to the abolition of slavery across Britain. And undoubtedly, him taking the the calling of his life and executing it created a ripple that affected the Americas and many other nations of the world. Why? Because one man said, I'm going to stop the pursuit of my own ambition. And he said, if it's in God's will, I'll be prime minister. But if it's outside God's will, I'm going to do what he's called me to do. And I'm going to live with moral purpose. And he gained greater satisfaction and a greater reward because of that decision. Will you stand with me? Here's the first step. Actually, would you just close your eyes? Can you begin to contemplate your life? Maybe the ladder that you're on right now is going to lead to divorce. Maybe the ladder that you're on is going to lead to success and popularity, but not executing the plan God has for you. Maybe the ladder that you're on is going to mean 
a lot of money, but the way you obtain it is outside of God's will. Listen, you can do those things if they're in God's will for your life, if they're right actions. But maybe you're seeing that the ladder you're on right now is the wrong ladder. And the ladder you need to begin to climb is what's God's will for me today? What's God's will for me tomorrow? What's God's will for me the next day? And going from obedience to obedience to obedience. So if you're here today and you'd say, Pastor Josh, I've been pursuing personal ambition, personal success, personal affluence and influence, rather than God's understanding and God's way, and I need to surrender something today, would you respond with me by lifting a hand or lifting both hands saying, I'm gonna lay something down right now. Let me remind you that whenever you lay something down, God replaces it. He, he blesses it in return. And I believe as you surrender this thing to him, he's going to begin to speak to you about his will. He's going to begin to speak to you about the right actions you can take. Come on, anybody else, you need to lift a hand and say, I'm laying something down today. I'm surrendering something. Maybe it's your own life and you need to say, Jesus, you can be Lord of my life. And he will bless your life. And he'll increase in you. The Bible says you simply need to call on the Lord and you'll be saved. That by the confession of your mouth and the belief in your heart, you will be changed, you will be saved. You can make that decision right now on your own. So Father, right now we say, yes, we will. God, we'll follow you. We'll pursue total obedience because it'll be pleasing to you. And what's pleasing to you will be pleasing to our own soul because you created us. We're made in your image. So come on all across this place. Can you surrender to him again? And just say, Lord, would you speak to me? And God, would you direct me? I step out of the driver's seat of my life and I give it to you. I surrender to you now. Come on, let's sing this together. Yes, I will. We're so glad you joined us today. Our hope is that you're challenged and encouraged by these teachings every week. We'd love to hear how God is using this ministry to change lives. Send us an email at mystory@goevangel.org. For more information about our church, check us out online at goevangel.org.